Hi, everyone. I am Jen Fisher. I am co-chair of the Cannabis Practice at Goodwin, a law firm um, in San Francisco. And I am proud to work in cannabis because I have the opportunity to work with the most amazing, resilient, smart, and dedicated clients who face enormous legal and operational challenges every day and persevere with the kind of humor, spirit, integrity that I love to see in clients. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to another week of the Proud to Work in Cannabis podcast. Here with me today, I'm joined with Jen Fisher, who is the co-chair of the cannabis practice at Goodwin, a leading law firm. She's in San Francisco. She's our attorney. So this is kind of an interesting one to have our attorney on a podcast with us. Jen, how are you today? I am great, Carson. Awesome to be here with you and so happy to be working with Vangst. So happy to work with you. Jen, Jen and I were in we're at Benzinga last week. We we were there, of course, at the time that there was the one in 1,000 or one in every 1,000 year rainfall event. So did you get out of, of Miami okay? Finally got out. Wasn't as smooth or easy as I would have liked it to have been. And we didn't get our pool time at the cabana that we had hoped we were going to get. Um, but still a great time and made it back to San Francisco just fine. You still had a good, you still pulled off a great happy hour. So even though we couldn't be at the pool. Yeah, we moved it indoors, but all you need is all the right people. And that's what we had. We had a great, we had a great crew. So Jen, talk to us a little bit about your background. Of course, you didn't start out in cannabis. So we would love to hear about your background pre-cannabis days. Sure. Um, So I graduated from law school and started working in, you know, sort of big law, big law firms, handling all types of different cases and um, investigations, primarily for companies in highly regulated industries. So dealing a lot with government regulators and active shareholders and um, complicated legal issues. And that was sort of my niche. And I was working, you know, hand in hand with clients, helping them both navigate sort of the regulatory regimes they were operating in, um, you know, responding to government inquiries, defending them in government enforcement actions, um, and also dealing with, you know, civil lawsuits that came their way. So um, really interesting practice with lots, a great mix of clients from lots of different industries. But the common thread really among those clients was that they happened to all, you know, operate in highly regulated spaces. So that actually is what led me to cannabis is I figured based on that experience, I at least had the skill set that would be valuable to cannabis companies um, and clients who were looking to navigate an increasingly complicated regulatory environment um, with lots of uncertainty around how the government and government enforcement agencies were going to look at the space, especially given um, the history of criminalization and the war on drugs. Um, And, you know, also something that was brand new and really exciting. Um, And so for sort of, I took that skill set that I developed working in other industries and have just been able to apply it to cannabis and um, pretty successfully, you know, help my clients navigate 
some pretty tricky stuff over the years. So what year was that when you decided that you wanted to transfer into cannabis somehow? And then how did you actually go about doing it? Yeah, so it was 2017 um, when I started thinking really seriously about focusing this practice that had been kind of diverse and varied in terms of industries, specifically on cannabis. And that timing was important because I was in San Francisco. Um, Voters in California had just, you know, passed the initiative to legalize adult use. And I was watching California try to figure out how they were going to stand up a highly regulated adult use industry after what at that point had been decades of a very loosely regulated medical use um, sort of regime. And when I started paying close attention to how they were thinking about doing it, you know, spread across three in California, initially spread across three different regulatory agencies with hundreds of pages of regulations (laughs) and lots of really intense barriers to entry. I thought to myself, this is going to be very complicated. (laughs) And this is going to be sort of challenging and difficult for for companies who want to think about entering this space. And they're probably going to need good lawyers. And aside from a lot of lawyers, at least in California, who traditionally practiced in this space, many of them were really traditional, true criminal defense lawyers and didn't have sort of the, the breadth of expertise that I had. So I thought, this is a great opportunity Um, I think there's going to be a great need. And more importantly than those two things, I was really drawn to the space just personally. I had a lot of friends who were getting involved in the space. I was starting to meet a lot of women who were thinking about this as a great opportunity to, you know, a space where they could start their own companies. Um, I was really attracted to the entrepreneurial spirit of the people I was meeting who were looking to get into the space. And then a big part of my practice had always been providing pro bono services to criminal defendants and incarcerated individuals. And so I also thought, well, if I'm focusing my practice on cannabis, I can also shift this very, very, very significant and important part of my practice in my pro bono sort of practice. Specifically, I can shift that also to focusing specifically on cannabis. And so I was really interested in sort of like the social justice aspect of it. The fact that at the time I thought it looked like a very even playing field for women and people of color to come and enter this space. Um, I wish it had sort of turned out differently, but this was part of all part of my motivation and my sort of personal drive to want to be part of this space was because it seemed like an exciting opportunity, um, a challenge, um, intellectually really interesting, but also a perfect fit for who I was and what I care about. And I thought this this could be a practice where I get just as much out of it as I put in. I love that. And so how did, so Brett, your co-chair, so were you both at Goodwin and then you came together and said, all right, let's go pitch Goodwin on the cannabis practice or? So yeah, great, great, great question, actually. Um, no, I was at um, of my prior firm, Dwayne Morrison, was also involved in the cannabis practice there as one of the, the leaders of that practice. And Brett was doing the same thing at Goodwin, sort of getting the practice started, um, establishing it. And both Dwayne Morrison and Goodwin were some of the two, you know, some of the only large law firms who were even willing to represent clients in the space. Right, at the time. right. Many of our peer firms would not touch 
clients in this space. Um, and so Brett and I actually met when we ended up being on opposite sides um, of a deal. We, I was representing an investor and he was representing a company. Um, Goodwin was representing the co- company. And um, the investor was, the, you know, for this client of mine, it was their first cannabis related investment. So they needed lots of hold hand, hand holding and wanted the diligence to be very robust. <laughs> I'll put it that way. Um, oh God. So- I've been on, I've been on the company side of the of that. Yeah. So I felt like I was answering to my client and to their investors and all, you know, and there were lots of questions to be asked. So it was, it was just a little bit, and I only say that because it, it led to a little bit more of my involvement in the deal on the regulatory diligence side than is typical in just, you know, a regular, you know, fundraising round. And so Brett and I got to work really closely on that deal, even though we were on opposite sides, our clients' interests were aligned. Ultimately, um, we were able to close the funding round. Um, and after that, he started recruiting me to Goodwin um, and I came over. <laughs> so it's most of the customers that, not customers, most of the clients, I, I guess like, it's so funny, like in, in, as lawyers, you, yeah, you refer to your people as clients. We refer to our people as customers. So I'm always mixing the lingo up, but are most of your clients and most of the deals that you're doing on the fundraising side, is it mostly cannabis tech related companies that are going out and doing VC types of traditional funding rounds, or is it more plan touching businesses that are potentially doing different financing, like debt and, and, and other forms of st- other structured deals? It's all of the above. And so um, at Goodwin, we have a real advantage in that we are probably most, one of the things we're most well known for is our tech practice. Um, We represent lots of emerging technology, you know, companies and the VCs that invest in that space. So a lot of our client base is made up of those types of investors and also technology companies that are focused on the cannabis industry, whether they're, you know, providing um, different types of, you know, platforms or services um, to the cannabis industry in particular, or, you know, they've, they've developed technologies that serve our industry um, specifically, or they're adopting other types of technology services that can be used in cannabis. Um, And so they can't come to us to help us navigate both scenarios. And then a strong part of our client base is investors in the space. And some of those investors are strictly non-plant touching only. Some are more interested in plant touching companies. Some are um, part of our traditional client base. Another strength of Goodwin is our life sciences practice. So we're seeing more and more you know, investors interested in cannabinoid research and novel, you know, therapeutic developments and things like that. So our investor base is pretty um, strong part of our, our, our client portfolio. And for them, you know, we really look at all types of deals, different stages, different, you know, early stage, later stage. Um, And then we do a lot of public company work for, for the um, publicly traded companies as well. So our, our, we really do, Plant touching, non-plant touching, you know, science and research, technology. Um, we represent all those types of companies, large and small, across the supply chain and the investors who are interested in investing in them. And it's a good funnel for you all as well if you have investors that you work closely with. Like we met through Casa Verde. Actually, I don't know what we're going to do when we inevitably do another deal and you're our lawyer and Casa Verde's lawyer, so I'm going to have to tell them that uh, – 
you're representing Bankstown, the deal. So on the fundraising topic, since a lot of people listening to this podcast may go out and ultimately fundraise, one of the things for Vangst was the first time that we did a round, we had already been operating for a couple of years. And so we didn't have a lot of the things together in a clean data room. And the first fundraise was just so much work for the diligence process. And I think that it would be cool for people to hear if they're a new company, they're getting set up, they're getting ready to go, and they have plans to fundraise in the future. What are the kind of things from a legal and legal diligence perspective can they do now to set themselves up so that when you're representing that investor on the other side of the deal, um, they're as best prepared going into the diligence you're going to need as possible? That is such a good question, actually. Um, And I will say that over the last- It's out of my own pain. It's out of my (laughs) own pain. On our first fundraise, I was like, oh my goodness. But then once you do it once, then the Series A and the Series B and the- following rounds are much easier because you have everything together. But I just had no idea how robust a diligence was going to be. And I just didn't have my stuff together, yeah. frankly, in the seed round. Yeah. And I think the challenge is for a lot of entrepreneurs who are starting out, um, they don't know what they don't know, <laughs> like what exactly what you're experiencing. And also what we've seen is, so there's an evolution that naturally occurs there, but there's also been a real ev- evolution in terms of the professionalization of the industry. So when I think back to like when I first peaked in a data room six years ago, started looking at things, it was kind of a mess, right? And, um, and, and even in 2018 and 2019, when, when companies were forming and doing, you know, their stock purchase agreements and a lot of their sort of corporate governance documents were a mess because their structures were overly complicated. And that's particularly true on the plant touching side. There was sort of a theory among lawyers serving in the space that having as complicated as a structure as you could was a good thing because it insulated you know, investors who are coming in through one vehicle, the IP in another, the real estate in another. And I think I don't, I understand why that was done because there were a lot of unknowns and it still appeared that everything may become at risk if the tide changed and there started to be more government, you know, enforcement. That just, as we all know, has not happened. And so a lot of what we've done is sort of unpack the complexity and help our cannabis clients run more like traditional companies. But for people starting out, I, that so that sort of leads to advice is like on, on really basic things like your corporate documents, you know, make them as clean and straightforward as you can, you know, make sure that they reflect, you know, everyone who may have a right to, you know, certain interests in your company. Um, And then, you know, on your finances too, because part of our legal diligence, we're always kind of also looking at um, what kind of, how the finances are are being kept and documented. You know, at the time when we started, cannabis companies could barely get the help of any accountants, much less accountants that our investors we're used to trusting their work. So that was very challenging, but I think there's a lot more opportunity to get good, sort of get your financial records in good order. That's something the investors are going to be looking at. And then your contracts, like, 
Every cannabis company has business partners that they're dealing with. How are those business relationships documented? When I first started in working in the space, I can't tell you how many times I was told by clients that it was just a handshake deal. Yep. That's oh. a problem. Handshake deals in the data room do not go well. <laughs> you can't you can't put a handshake deal that's not documented in the data room. And you don't really and, and it's hard for investors to assess the value and stability of that relationship when there's the rights and sort of remedies of some if something goes wrong aren't spelled out in a document that they can then rely on um, if there's a dispute. So, you know, getting your, you know, all of your different partners, regardless of like what what type of vertical you're in, but getting, you know, the contracts and agreements, um, you know, just buttoned up and, and documented, I think is huge. And it doesn't need to all of these things. And I understand when you're starting out, you're very cash strapped. Um, and it's hard to think about hiring outside, um, you know, consultants or specialists or lawyers or accountants. Um, to do this, but there's lots of there's lots of ways you can do that at cost. At Goodwin, we work with entrepreneurs all the time, and we have special pricing um, that we give, especially if they're you know pre Series A, um, and we sort of stagger things out so that we can do all the work right in the first time, and it's all buttoned up. And then when they start raising, it just becomes easier and easier. Um, and there's lots of other you know shops out there that 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 gear a lot of their services towards entrepreneurs and startups. So those are some of the things I know that investors, you know, care about and want to see. Um, and then of course on the, the plant touching side, they're, uh, you know, really keeping track of all of your regulatory approvals, the status of them, any correspondence you're, that you're having with regulators, um, you know, they are going to want to see at a minimum that your licenses are 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 valid and that you're in good standing with the regulator. And that's low hanging fruit, at least for our clients, because they all you know are striving to to really work in a compliant way. But there's some sometimes there can be gaps in that information, and you know nothing causes a red flag more than just thinking that potentially the license is enough to snap <laughs> without the license. Yeah, you don't have much. Right. So so really on the regulatory side, just making sure all your I's are 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 dotted and your T's are crossed because um, like I said, that that should be how most companies are operating in the space. And it's not always true. And that scares off investors. And and there's little things that can can trip you up. I actually as you were writing out the things to get in line, I was writing some out and the financials and contracts and how those two things intertwine. We had in our seed round, like I was mentioning, we were bootstrapped and we were just trying to get contracts out the door and customers to pay. But the way that the contracts were written and the way and the timing at which our revenue was coming in didn't perfectly align. And, you know, as someone just running around like a chicken with my head cut off running the business, I was like, oh yeah, I know the contract says this, so we really do this. And it was like a whole 911 fire drill. We had a couple hundred customers at the time. We had to go back and get them to all re-sign new contracts, send them new invoice, you know, send them new invoices and like do all this backtracking work, um, which I'm glad that we did. But had we just taken, you know, take take the advice from me, someone that doesn't want to slow down to do anything, had we taken five hours 
out of the gate to just work with the accountant and the lawyer on the same call to make sure that everything was the way that it was supposed to be. We would have saved ourselves so much time stress during the deal. So I can't emphasize enough on what Jen just said around just making sure that the corporate documents, the financials, and the contracts are in great standing. You will save so much time and money when, when you go out to raise. Any other tips just around first-time founders potentially getting ready for that first raise? Because, you know, I know you live and breathe this all day, every day from the legal side. Yeah. I mean, I think founders who obviously like really believe in what they're doing and have a vision for what their company is doing today and what it's going to be doing a year from now, two years from now. And that's hard in cannabis because we're, we live in an like ever evolving industry. Um, but if you have your core mission and you know where you fit in to the industry and you can articulate why there's a need for what you're trying to do, I think that's incredibly helpful because it helps inform kind of everything else. When you get on the phone with like your lawyer, when I talk to founders, I'm like, what do you want to do? Where do you want to be? What vertical do you want to be? What niche do you want to fill? And have you determined that there's a need for what you want, like the product you're offering or because I know that those are the questions we're going to get asked by the, you know, once we start the raise and the, and the investors start looking at the company. In addition to the nitty gritty, you got to got to get them in the door and get them excited about it. And the, you know, uh, lots of different segments within cannabis have become a little bit more saturated. So having that real like vision and how you fit in and being able to articulate why there's a future in whatever you're trying to do. I think that narrative is super important. And then you, you know, once you move, once you draw the people in, then they're going to be, you know, doing a deeper dive, but you want to get them interested. And, you know, it's, as you know, better than anyone, Carson, it's a grind. (laughs) It's a grind out there. Especially now that interest rates have gone up, I would say it's going to be a real grind out there. Yeah. I mean, there's so many headwinds that founders in this space face every single day. And so you need to have that grit and you you have to know why you're doing it and you have to believe in why you're doing it. Otherwise, I can imagine it it's hard to get up and do this every day if you're a founder in the space. And so you have to be driven by something more than a desire to launch a successful company and make money and sell it one day. Like it's just not that kind of space because in order to get to that point, <laughs> You just have to put in so much work. Yeah, it's a lot of years and it's a long it's it's a long road. I'm curious on the so last year and cannabis funding went down VC funding went down 96% year over year, which was a, a pretty crazy drop. So the deals that you did see getting done, what was the difference in the dynamic of the deals from the 2020, 2021 days to the 2022, 2023 days, because the, we've been harping on this on this podcast quite a bit in, in all the founders that we have on, we're all on the same page of getting our business to break even and cash flow positive so that we're not at the mercy of investors. But some people that's not possible and they're going to need to go out and raise. So I'm curious what you're seeing because, you know, with, with the 96% drop in deals, those deals that are getting done, like 
you know, what's it like being in those deals? Yeah, well, I mean, I think the the biggest sort of shift in our practice is just sort of seeing it, we we've seen that firsthand. Really, just the dramatic reduction in the number of deals, the value of the deals, the volume of the deals. Um, it was we were there was just a really active clip um, there for a while where you know there was lots of interest in investing in cannabis, particularly among some of our clients who weren't already in this space and were considering it, those people, those clients, those investor clients, I think have almost uniformly decided to sit on the sidelines at the moment. Um, Which why? When, when, when they talk to you and they tell you that they're going to sit on the sidelines, what, what are the reasons you're hearing from those investors? Yeah. So it's a couple of things is like looking at the state of the industry, the risk isn't worth the return. And so right. right now, whereas in 2019, people just in 2020, like a lot of people were like, yes, this is risky, A, from a just investment standpoint, because there's uncertainty around this industry and, you know, it's new and all those other things. But then there's like, you know, some regulatory risk and and we don't know what's going to happen at the federal level. And, you know, but but people were hopeful that those risks like wouldn't materialize in any real way while at the same time their upside was going to be a real upside. Now with just like the total stall out in federal reform, there's less interest in the longer game. And there's other, you know, I think we're seeing this sort of across our industry base at Goodwin, like that there's just a slowdown in deal activity, not just in cannabis, but across the board. So people are just sort of keeping their powder dry at the moment and waiting for, you know, changes and things like inflation and interest rates, I think will make a will make a difference when we start to, you know, when those we start to turn the corner. Um, but really, it's that risk reward analysis that 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 companies that investors are doing and kind of thinking through like, is there an easier to predict, easier to manage, easier to, you know, point of entry type, you know, type of investment to make than cannabis? And the answer is- Yeah, like, totally. Yes. The answer is yes. There's lots of others <laughs> that are a lot easier. Um, yeah. And I think it's just having seen, you know, from top to bottom, sort of the stock prices of the of the public companies and the valuations drop, and which you know traditionally might be the right, the right type of investor might see that as a real opportunity, and I think there are some out there who do still view it that way, but a lot of the a lot of the investment in the space has stalled because um, because the industry is is going through a you know a challenge at the moment, and that cup being coupled with the fact that there's you know at least no real promise of meaningful federal reform anytime soon. Yeah, and I think during this downtime, it is a good chance for people to button up some of the things we spoke about earlier. Like we're working with you on redoing our contract for some, I mean, I do think that there is an opportunity in this moment from a legal standpoint to when everything is go, 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 it's hard to catch, to catch your breath. Uh, and, and clean up some things. So, so what, what could people, maybe some folks like me, we're not raising, thankfully, right now. What are some things that, from a legal standpoint, I should be focused on when I'm not raising, uh, but things are going well, and we, we want to be ready if an opportunity comes up? Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, I think while these, a lot of this stuff has like legal implications, it's really like focusing on the business fundamentals and also thinking through like, 
you know, where you sit, who your customers are, who your partners are, how you can create new efficiencies that you may not have needed to create before. But in order to preserve some of that cash is super important. And sometimes that means restructuring certain partnerships or things like that. So that can, that's where we're doing some, some legal work, but also, um, you know, really looking at your processes and if there's ways to make them you know, a little bit more streamlined um, and thinking through, you know, if you're customer facing like you are and a lot of, you know, cannabis companies are like, how are you best serving the needs of your customers at the moment? And can you give them a little more love and, um, you know, really, you know, really develop in a, in a stronger way that loyalty? Because I think for the companies that are focused on all of those things at the moment and really, hunkering down on being really good at what they do and buttoning up how they do it when we come out of this. Cause I don't ever like to say if, cause I really think it is a, yeah, when it is a one, it is a one. Those companies are going to be the most well positioned to really take off. And I think what we're seeing is that companies that just aren't able to do that probably won't even make it through. And so there's a little bit of a reckoning in this happening in the space now, because I think when money was flowing in, it was also flowing out in a really quick and sort of, you know, in a way that that wasn't as sensible, um, practical, sort of conservative as the way people are thinking about using their resources now. And that's just good discipline. Like, that's just good discipline. Yeah, good discipline. Well, it's you know, around this time last year, a lot of people really started raising the warning, you know, raising the warning flag and saying, attention, you really need to cut your burn and make sure that you have cash into 2025. That was the advice that our board was giving us. That was the advice that a lot of great boards were giving to their founders. But as we saw from the data from Silicon Valley Bank, the Deposits weren't coming in, but the balances were going down. So the burn was still happening. A lot of people did not get the memo to cut their burn. And now here we are in the spring of 2023 and you have six months of cash. I think that we're going to see like, to your point around people not making it, like I'm seeing a lot of companies that are in this couple months of cash trying to get a deal done, trying to get a merger done. So I think the fallout is going to be the worst over the next six months. And then the people that can get to profitability and be self-sustaining and keep plowing forward have this huge opportunity. So I don't know if that's just what I'm seeing or if you're seeing that too, but I'm kind of shocked by the amount of people that just didn't cut their burn a year ago. Yeah. I think you're absolutely right that that, that heeding that advice that I think most people got at the time that you got it is going to inure to your benefit in a way that is probably going to be exponential because it's a way of setting yourself apart in the market. And it's a way for all companies that are doing it. And having that solid balance sheet is something that investors are always, always, always going to be interested in and prioritize in terms of where they put their money. And so when the money starts flowing back into the industry in a real way, I think you're going to see some big winners. And those are the companies that have really, you know, focused on the fundamentals and gotten everything in order. And already, because they've done all of that, when they think about how they're going to use their next, you know, round or their next, you know, influx of capital, it's to scale. 
It's mm-hmm. like, we're, we've got this. We are doing everything right. Now let's just go do more of it. Absolutely. Nobody wants to bail out a dying company. They want to invest in a company that has the chance to make it. And I think a lot of investors are, especially in cannabis, are sitting back on the sidelines to wait to see who the players are going to be and what's going to happen over the next 12 months. Yeah. As their money's not flowing in and hopefully people are hunkered down, um, you know, improving some of their, you know, these, these, you know, sort of foundational things that we've talked about. I do think that is the, in addition to sort of the sort of more macro issues, I think the wait and see approach that investors are taking has a lot to do with that as well. Mm -hmm. So switching gears a little bit, you're a mom with three daughters. How have you talked to the girls about cannabis and your work? Super curious to hear about this. Yes. So um, I'm very open with my girls. My daughters are 11, 13, and 15. So they're at ages that are, you know, pretty pivotal because they're old enough to understand and be interested in what I do every day. Um, But they're not quite old enough to like understand the all the complexity and nuances around, you know, how people incorporate cannabis into their life for health and wellness, because a lot of the messaging that they're still getting around cannabis is very much, you know, focused on the harms. And I think what I do a really intentional job of is trying to differentiate um, the, the, all of the benefits of both cannabis use and, um, you know, the, importance of having a legalized industry for adults. (laughs) So that's where I really, you know, really keep my focus on that. This is something that is a very adult thing. Um, And, you know, but I also don't, I want to normalize it. I think a lot of the challenges the industry face faces is based on, you know, stigma. So I'm just in my little part of the world, you know, trying to dismantle some of that stigma. And um, it's difficult because you're up against lots of different messaging that they're getting. And, you know, my oldest daughter in particular, she's a freshman in high school, and there's definitely, you know, you know, lots of cannabis use happening and, um, and that she's, you know, seen or made aware of among, you know, teenagers and, you know, just really trying to help her understand why for her own brain development and well-being, she just needs to wait. And I'm really adamant. Just like alcohol. She's just not like, like just like you're not encouraging her to go drink tequila. Exactly. I, just like alcohol, we talk about it in the same ways and we talk about it, you know, in terms of why there's a legal age requirement. Um, And, but I think, you know, you know, also what's unique about, you know, my work in the space is I, I do probably spend a disproportionate amount of time talking to them about the, the pro bono work that I do. And they do know when I'm talking to my clients um, on the phone who are incarcerated um, and really trying to instill in them this understanding of what happened with the war on drugs and the disproportionate impact it had on people of color and, and, and how just a very small, you know, piece of what I'm trying to do is really to try and right some of those wrongs. And so I like, I, I probably focus more on that part of the work. So they have a, a really good understanding of, of sort of some of these, you know, societal impacts and, you know, law enforcement and how that all played out um, in, in, um, in social justice, social equity issues. Cause I really want them to have a really strong awareness of that as they're, you know, sort of coming of age and, 
you know, the good thing about raising three girls in the city of San Francisco is that they are not strangers to cannabis. <laughs> they, yeah. They, yeah. they know that smell anywhere. They've been smelling yeah. it since we, you know, lived near Golden Gate Park, since we walked them there as, as babies and toddlers. So the exposures there is just helping them understand some of the complexities around some of the messaging they get and the work that I'm doing. On, on the on the pro bono front, that's a, that's so cool that you were, wor- that this was a passion you had before. And of course it fits perfectly into the work you're doing in cannabis. Is there any success stories or, 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 or cases that you can share with us? Because I know this is an interest to a lot of people and a lot of people want to figure out ways they can support and help here. Yeah. So, um, I'm one of the legal advisors for The Last Prisoner Project and we're the lead law firm partner that works with them, um, on, um, release proceedings. So, I start, really started a, a project with them at the start of the pandemic where we were, there was a, we recognized there was a real opportunity to pursue release um, m- motions for compassionate release is what it's called under the law, under the First Step Act, um, which was part of the Congress's criminal justice reform. And because COVID was spreading so rampantly through the prison system prior to the availability of vaccines, there was an opportunity to get federal court judges to pay attention to individuals who had risk factors, who were serving nonviolent cannabis events, you know, serving time for nonviolent cannabis offenses, had um, significant years left on their sentences, but also had a reentry plan. So a supportive family to come home to, health care, potential for employment, and use this moment in time where if these individuals were to stay incarcerated, their risk of getting seriously ill from COVID was increased exponentially. So Which that is was just horrifying, by the way. Horrifying. And it was horrifying at the time. So we, you know, there was an opportunity for us to at least use this procedural mechanism to get in front of federal district court judges and then present a really more comprehensive narrative. You know, we talked about COVID and we talked about the dangers and we talked about that, but in every single motion that we filed in any of these cases, we always include a section on just the un, like the injustice involved in these extraordinarily long sentences that people are serving for cannabis, nonviolent cannabis offenses for conduct that has now been legalized in all of these states. Um, and just, you know, just, how this is un- ridiculous. Unfair. That really so is. unfair. It really is so unfair. It makes it also like what's up with our country just like wanting to just lock people up for nonviolent offenses for decades and decades. Like, don't you think it's just a drain on us as taxpayers and just not the right way to go? Why are we obsessed with jail in this country? Well, th- that's a bigger question that I'm happy to go into anytime. But it's so true. <laughs> and and I think when you. You know, when you look across sort of like all the drug related offenses, you know, the sentences are just crazy and the way they're 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 disproportionately handed out, the longer and more severe sentences to people of color, it really just like is enraging to me. Enraging. But then when you look at cannabis that's now being legalized and people are creating a lot of wealth around it or hopefully creating a lot of wealth. And jobs, creating jobs, legal jobs. And you've sort of turned this whole thing upside down. And yet because it's still federally illegal, our clients who are primarily individuals serving federal prison sentences, there's no reform out there 
that that's applicable to them. So, you know, there are states that have now begun incorporating criminal justice reform in their legalization efforts. So, you know, reductions in sentences and expungements and release proceedings that make it easier. But at the federal level, that's not happening at all. So we have to use these procedural mechanisms and you can't do that unless you have a good lawyer. And so these people are all need good lawyers. So I encourage anyone who's listening, if you want to get involved, please reach out to me because we're always looking for more lawyers to take these cases on. Um, and, and so COVID sort of ended. But but while in that time, we had two wonderful success stories where we got two clients released home to their families, one of whom is named Andy Cox. Some of you who are at MJ Biz might have um met him. He was um, at our Goodwin booth telling people his story. He was he was serving a life sentence. No, life. A life sentence for nonviolence. You got to be kidding me. His, his um, sentence had gotten stacked um, and he was serving a life sentence. What, is sen- what does it mean if you say your sentence has gotten stacked? So um, because of the nature of the of offenses, they stacked sort of the the length of time to be served on top of one another and stacked up the charges. So what that results in is sort of this, a circumstance where some individuals face mandatory minimums. And so some of those mandatory minimums call for a sentence from 25 years to life. And that, that is what he got. Um, But you got him out. We got him out. He um, is, just doing really well. We really got close to his family. Um, his sister was instrumental in helping him get us out. So um, we have, you know, went to Florida and visited in them after he was released. And like I said, he came with us to MJ Biz, Last Prisoner Project, sort of, you know, helped guide him through that experience, which was really crazy for him to see the industry sort of built yeah. up, um, the way it has while he's been in prison um, and, you know, have him tell us a story. So really put some of these statistics in this injustice, like put a name to a face and, um, you know, and hear his story is really, really rewarding. Um, and now maybe we could have him on the podcast with you another yes, time. Yes. He's, he's amazing to talk to and just a wonderful, wonderful person and a real success story in terms of how he's reentered society and rebuilt his life after serving years in federal prison. Um, and now but there's 40,000, there's, aren't there, there's 40,000 more of these stories, yes, right? That we know of. It's like a hard number that we to know track, of. you know, it could be more, it's, it's, the Bureau of Prisons doesn't keep very good records and doesn't make them accessible. So it's hard to know the exact number, but it's, it's, it's a huge community of people who are looking for, for help. And, and now we've sort of started working more also with the Cannabis Justice Initiative, which is really focused in addition to compassionate release on clemency proceedings. So as, as you know, most of your listeners might know, you know, President Biden, you know, did announce pardons for, you know, individuals who've been convicted on federal possession charges, very, you know, sort of small step um, in a, in a much, you know, in an area of law that where bigger reform is much needed. Um, But there at least have been some indications from the office of the pardon attorney that there's, you know, looking at and considering, um, you know, clemency for nonviolent drug offenders in particular, you know, people with cannabis convictions. Um, And so a large part of the effort that our teams are now working on is trying to position our clients and get those clemency petitions in the door so that if the president wants to do that, there's, you know, the procedural, you know, requirements have been met. 
those stories have been told in a really effective way, sort of why each individual client that we represent um, is deserving of a clemency grant and a commutation of their sentence and a release from prison. And so that's where the focus of our work is now um, in the hopes that there's a real chance for for reform while um, President Biden's in office. Well, in 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 wrapping up here, if you could just if you could just look forward into the future of cannabis, let's let's not go too let's not go too far. Let's do a short term. Let's say that we're 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 sitting here on April seventeenth, twenty twenty four, twelve months from now. What is your okay. hope that the industry can accomplish over the next twelve months? Bite sized pieces. Yeah. So I I hope that we see. Um, more companies um, operating more efficiently. And I hope we see more investors coming off the sidelines. And even if they're doing smaller scale raises based on smaller valuations, at least seeing some influx of capital into the space. Um, I'd love to see the capital markets you know, rebound <laughs> um, from where they are now. Um, I would like to see more women in leadership positions in larger companies and more women-founded companies like Vangst um, achieving real success. Um, and I'd like to see um, more unification around the industry's messaging as to in terms of why reform is so important, specifically on issues like 280E. Um, I think we have not flexed our muscle enough as an industry um, to try and address, uh, you know, federal laws that are increasingly debilitating. Um, and so I, and I'm, so I don't ever make predictions of when reform will happen, but a year from now, I would like to see some, you know, real, progress on what we can control, which is how the industry mobilizes in terms of a unified and persuasive way to try and start laying the foundation for real reform, because that, you know, will be up to Congress and the administration, but there's more as an industry we can be doing to achieve reform. And that obviously has, you know, exponential rewards for the industry if we can get some relief on, on, um, on some of the, you know, issues that are, you know, create a lot of hurdles and challenges for our industry that other industries just don't face. Yeah. And I like that answer too, because I feel like as an industry, one thing that we struggle with is we try to get too much done and then nothing gets done. And so we need, we need some small, we need some small wins. So as an example, even in some of the bills that we've put forth, we'll add in a bunch of other We'll add in uh, the way that uh, our lobbyist explained it to me. She was like, it's like you're hiking up a hill with a backpack and you start out with one rock in the backpack and somehow 15 more rocks get added into the backpack. You don't make it to the top of the hill. Like we just need a backpack and a water bottle for this hike this year. Basic, basic things like bank accounts. Just the the, like the basic, like the things that will provide banking, meaningful relief. Yeah. you know, safe banking, a standalone bill. <laughs> um, and I think, you know, while there's, you know, so, there's some, um, you know, there's a school of thought out there that like tucking it into a different bill um, is the way to go. That just hasn't worked. Um, and so, you know, there's, you know, given the, the landscape of states who've legalized cannabis and those states have recognized a tremendous amount of revenue, um, there should be more political pressure 
on the elective rev- representatives in Congress who represent those states um, to help this industry. And there just hasn't been that sort of concerted and focused and unified voice in Washington. So I'd like to see progress on that front in the next year. You and me both. Well, if people want to find you or get in touch with you or they're in the market for a badass lawyer or uh, how can people find you? How can people get in touch? Yes. So it's really easy. You can just Google Jennifer Fisher Goodwin and you'll find all my contact information on my firm bio on our webpage. Well, great. Everybody Google Jennifer Fisher Goodwin. You can get in touch there. And Jen, it's been great to have you on. I'm sure I'll talk to you later, but thank you so much for doing this with me. Thank you so much for having me. It was so fun as always to chat with you. Okay. Have a good rest of your day. You too. listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hi, y'all. I'm Joe, host of Casually Baked the Podcast. If you're curious to explore the highly responsible side of cannabis, farming, and legalization, I'm here to help lighten the stigma and build your canna confidence. Download episodes now of Casually Baked the Podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. And journey with me through the evolving cannabis culture and discover how and why people like you are adding cannabis to their wellness toolkit. It's time to get casually baked.